from 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 15 through 40. Stand with me, if you will, uh, for the reading of the, God's word. <clears throat> and Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, the troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of the Asherah, who eat at, Jezre at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and cannot be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, 
Let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And then all the people saw it. They fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you may be seated. And let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have called us into your presence this morning. Thank you that you have given us your word and that your spirit is, is with us now. I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts, that we would be changed by your word, for we desperately need it, and we cling to your truth. Lord, we thank you for our brother, Nick, who, is, who has come to us this morning and is sharing the good news with us. Pray that you would bless him mightily and that your word would go forth with power. We thank you that we can gather together in your name and be changed by your spirit. And thank you in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Good morning, Evergreen Presbyterian Church. It really is such a privilege to be here uh, to give you and bring you God's word I am really excited, and I had as my, uh, the title of this is, If God is God, really and truly, then serve him. This text, that's really it. It's not, um, it's not more complicated than that. It's pretty simple, and he, Elijah points this out to the people in two ways. First, he does it by showing that Baal is not a god. And then he proves that the god of their fathers, not just any god, but it's the god of their fathers who is there, who listens, who is the one and true living god. But before we get there, I think, especially with our confession of sin this morning, we need to address something, which is at the end, the last verse, verse 40 was, Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there, the 450 prophets of Baal. And we do need to guard ourselves and try to not impose our culture of a love of violence or violent movies, which is something that I've been prone to do. Because that's not what's going on here. We're not when God is giving us his word here and giving us this historical account, he's not trying to glorify just the fact that they died. What he's trying to do here and what's happening is we're entering into a period of war. More particularly, when we jump into uh, 1 Kings 18, we're reading right after a genocide has happened. See, the book of 1 Kings, since we're jumping in the middle of it, it's a book about, well, kings, the kings of Israel in particular. See, once David became king 
he sinned and was not the king that he was supposed to be. And there wouldn't be a king like Israel should have until Jesus comes and fulfills the obligations that David should have fulfilled. And right now, that Davidic king is sitting on the throne. But until then, we do have a lot of examples of different kings. And when we get to 1 Kings 18, we're, it, we're witnessing the downfall of the northern kingdom of Israel. So you went from David, who had many wives, committed adultery, and fought with his sons for the rest of his life. It went from that situation to Solomon, who quelled a rebellion, who then had many foreign wives, who led him astray. Then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who probably did something wrong. You're kind of catching the drift here. Rehoboam, he tortured his own people and used them for slavery, and they rebelled against him, and they, the northern kingdom, 10 of the 12 tribes, broke away. And if you were to flip back just to learn about some of the characters here, 1 Kings 16, we learn about the particular northern king that we're reading of here. It's King Ahab. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Ahab married a foreign wife just like his father's had. Except Ahab did kind of made a step up here. Ahab took evil to a new level. Jezebel was the daughter of the high priest of Baal. Baal, that's what the significance of saying daughter of Ethbaal, that means the high priest of Baal. That's who he chose to marry. And not only did he do that, but he was drawn into the worship of Baal as well. And the king, along with his people, he drew his people into the worship of Baal. Not only did he do that, but verse 32 of chapter 16, he erected, erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, a worship pole. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Up to this point, if you keep reading in the book of Kings. In his days, uh, in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho and laid its foundation at the cost of Abram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which was spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So he even went back and rebuilt Jericho, which there was a curse accompanying it, if you read back in Joshua. And he did that sacrificing his sons in order to do that. So we already get that this guy is not good, right? The reason for this book the whole book of Kings, is to show the Israelites who are right now in exile why they're in exile. Have you ever been suffering and wondering, why does God have me here? Why am I going through this? 
That's what the Israelites were doing. And God was showing them, the Israelites in particular, that the reason why they were in exile is because God had kept his word. Israel turned away from him, forsook the covenant, were not trusting in God to be their savior, their redeemer. And God did exactly as he promised in Leviticus. He gave them to the other nations. But the hope here is that if God was faithful to keep his word in judgment, then he's going to also be faithful in his word to keep his promises to his son, David. And they never would get the full uh, promise of that. That would have to wait until the New Testament to see that God keeps his promises. And we might not have a uh, divine insight into exactly why we're going through what we're going through. But what we can do is trust in God's promises for us that it is all for our good and for his glory, Romans 8, 28. So that's what, where we're at. But it gets a little bit worse still. So he sends a, God sends a guy named Elijah, kind of raised out of nowhere in chapter 17. The Holy Spirit is with him to perform powerfully. And you see what Elijah's mission is in chapter 18. That guy, uh, Obadiah, he had been hiding away prophets of Israel. See, Ahab had, had turned Israel away from worshiping the one true living God to worshiping Baal. And they would struggle with this pretty much their whole existence. Kind of having one, set, one foot set in the worship of the one true God, trying to please him, trying to do things according to his word, while with their right hand or their, with their, having their right foot in the other side, trying to appease the other local gods in their area. And you know, God was not happy with that, and neither was Jezebel. Jezebel's goal for rerouting Israel to make them a, uh, making them non-secretistic, not trying to worship two gods at once or blend religions, Jezebel had a pretty easy solution to it. She would just murder all the priests and all the prophets. Because if you get rid of all the priests and all the prophets, guess what? There's no one left to teach God's word. There's no one left to call them back. And we see Elijah here in verse 22 saying, speaking to the people, I, even I only am left, of the, left a prophet of the Lord. That's the situation. Israel right now is on the verge of, of extinction. And God is intervening in history to act to save his people, to cause their hearts to turn back to him. And this is the war that's happening. And in the irony of all ironies, while Jezebel's trying to murder all the prophets of Israel, the prophets of Baal end up being slaughtered in this war. That's where we're at So he sets up this competition. Elijah comes up in verse 21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. 
The people are stuck in between this. They are, not, they are undecided, right? They, they want to follow the king and follow his worship and please him. And yet, they're having God's prophet reach out and call out to them. Giving him the good news of, if God is God, serve him and him alone. And that word there, the people did not answer him a word. That's the key word that kind of goes throughout this text. And Elijah deals with these problems in reverse order. First, he proves that Baal's not a god. And then he proves that the God of their fathers is the one true living God. And look how he does that. Look how often between verses 24 and 29, the word answer comes up. And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll, this is t- verse 24, and I'll call the name of the Lord God, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So you might be thinking to yourselves, why is there this particular conversa- uh, competition? It seems kind of weird that they're setting up this altar on this mountain, and they're supposed to you know, not light it at all, and they're supposed to pray, and then a fire just comes down and does the offering, you know, sucks up the offering. Seems like a weird competition, doesn't it? Well, Baal is a storm god in the Middle East. He was a god of storms who would send lightning and thunder and rain. If any god could do this, any local deity, you'd think that this would be a challenge that Baal would be up to. He could just throw a lightning bolt, and then the fire would be there. So yeah, seems like a good competition to them. But there's not really a competition at all because there's no competitor here. Look at how the word answer keeps appearing. Verse 26, they took a bowl given to them. They prepared it, called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice No one answered. And then verse 29. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of offering of oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. See, it didn't matter how sincere these prophets were. They were praying to nobody. So nobody answered. I've encountered many nice, kind Muslims, Hindus, Jehovah Witnesses, and Mormons. They're all sincere in their beliefs. They are all all even zealous. I've met some zealous for their beliefs. But their fundamental problem is that what they're believing in is not true. Our faith is only as valid as the object of our faith is true. So I'm originally from, well, I was born in Michigan, and I had very limited experience ice fishing. And you know, if I believed that I could walk out on the ice, and I was super confident about it, but if the ice was only an inch thick, it really didn't matter how strongly I believed in the ice. I would fall through. And likewise, if I was terrified to walk out on the ice, 
And I had just a little bit of faith and was just enough to walk out on the ice. And if that ice was three feet thick, it wouldn't matter how little my faith is. Because three-foot ice can support a semi-truck. It's not going to have any problem supporting me. That's why it's so important that whenever God's word comes to us, it comes from out of history. Think about 1 Corinthians 15. When Paul delivers to them the good news that he preached to them, he says, it has been delivered to you just as I have received it. That Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. How do you know that? And he was buried. The proof that he was really dead. Then, and it continues in 1 Corinthians 15, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then Paul lists out a bunch of witnesses and attestations to the fact that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead. Fundamentally, at the most at-root ground level, for why we are Christians and why we follow the Lord Jesus Christ is because it is a historical fact. It is a reality of the world that we live in that the Lord God is God. He has acted in history ever since Adam, Moses, Abraham, David, and lastly in Jesus Christ. This is a fact of reality that has been revealed to us. This is what makes, this is the firm foundation of our faith, is the fact that this is all true. All of God's word is true. But it's one thing to prove that Baal is not a God. It's another thing for God to answer his prayer. And he does it with two miracles, one obvious and one a little less so from our eyes. Let's pick up. And look at what he does. Verse 30, Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. See, the people had been tearing down the altars, if you read in chapter 19, getting rid of any remembrance of the God of their fathers. Verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. What is he doing here? He's drawing them in. He's drawing the people in to have them come and look at what he's doing. See, the point of this competition really isn't, you know, it's, it's not to make a fool out of anybody, as I've heard this focused on when we focus on the, the prophets of Baal crying out to their gods, the focus is not, intent, is not primarily about making a fool out of people who worship false religions. It's a call to his own people to come back to him. That's the purpose in this competition. It's a calling of his people back to himself. And he does that by drawing him in. Come look what I'm doing. He, draw, he builds an altar that reminds them of their name, the name that God had given them. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar. 
as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put wood in order and cut the bull into pieces and laid down the wood. And he said, fill four jars of water and pour it on the burnt offering on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. So first they had 12 stones that reminded them of the 12 tribes of Israel, reminded them of the fact that God gave them the name Israel to their nation. And now we have another 12 here. They poured four jars once. They poured four jars twice. And if I had a third hand, they poured four jars again, 12 again. This is drawing, he's drawing the people in to remember the Lord, their God. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Look at Elijah's prayer. Elijah's prayer is, yes, that God would send fire. But it's for a purpose. It's for causing to turn the hearts of those people back to himself. And you know, unlike the prophets of Baal who prayed from morning until evening, getting more and more intense as the day worn on, even getting so intense that they would cut their blood saying, care for us, gushing blood, as the text says, so sincere. And yet Elijah only has to pray one time for the effect to happen. God sends the fire. Uh, Then the fire fell, verse 38, of the Lord, and it consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. I don't know about you guys, but I kind of have the image of like Independence Day, that little sky beam that comes down and everything is gone in its path. Or you can picture pretty much every Avengers movie that has some sort of sky beam in the sky decimating that area. And that's pretty much the picture here. But instead of movies, this evokes a different image in the mind of the Israelites. See, numerous times throughout Israel's history, God has appeared to them as a column of fire, leading them through the wilderness, leading them through the Red Sea at the beginning of uh, their redemption, or even picking up here the same language of Leviticus 9.24, that when they first inaugurated the tabernacle in the wilderness, they had their very first offering They had their very first preparation of Aaron and the high priest. And what did they see when they had their first offering? They had a billow of fire come down and consume everything and lick it all up. You know what? The response in Leviticus 9.24 was the same as here. They all fell down on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God, 
the Lord, he is God. God has made it unmistakably clear that it's not just any God who's answering these prayers. It's the Lord, their God. It's the God that delivered them out of Egypt. It's the God who has saved them. It's the God who made promises to David, their king. It's the God that they are called to be faithful to. That's the God who is answering here. And that's the God who has needs to, at this point in history, cause his people's hearts to turn back to them. And I think it's at this point that we can ask a question, maybe a nagging question in your mind, which is, why doesn't God do that for me today? Why doesn't God, when I want evidence of him, or I want to show my friends who are unconvinced Why can't I pray a prayer and expect a miracle to happen and God convert them like he did here? Well, I kind of have two different answers for that. One for the honest inquirer and one for the not-so-honest inquirer, the person who's trying just to more goad you to get angry. And the one to the honest inquirer is we just need to look at what does the Bible say about miracles? What's the purpose of miracles? Because if you know what a miracle is and what its purpose is in Scripture, it makes it clear at why we as Christians do not, the key word here, expect them in everyday life. Or an answer in some miraculous way to send fire from heaven in answer to our prayers to prove to someone. If you look, you could look at uh, Hebrews 2, 3 through 4, just to kind of see this what I'm talking about here, but miracles are signs. Miracles point to things. They're pointing to authenticate a message or a messenger and point that this message and messenger are, in fact, they do come from God. This is why we see miracles at particular occasions. Miracles have never been the everyday life and everyday experience of any human being ever. That's not how miracles work in scripture. That's not how God acts in scripture. So miracles are God's acting in history, and he's authenticating his messenger and his message. This is why you see miracles in the Bible clustered around moments in redemptive history. Moments like Moses. Moments like Elijah and Elisha. Moments like the prophets. Moments like, especially, Jesus Christ and his ministry, where there are more miracles than any other time in human history. And then also in the time of the apostles, who were giving out Jesus's message and had accompanying them Jesus's Holy Spirit. The same spirit that was empowering Jesus was empowering the apostles. So that's the the honest inquirer, is miracles have never been like a Pez dispenser trying to, you know, on command, getting God to respond to us, especially when we need to convince our maybe atheist friend or any false religious friend. But maybe to the, I think probably the more common one would be to, 
would be to the person who's mocking Christianity, wouldn't it? To that person, I think it would be good to say that in history, it wasn't like that it happened every day. That, don't you know what the nature of the Bible is? It's, it's a, it tells us the history of events. Don't you realize that even for the readers of First Kings, they didn't have, they didn't witness these events. God was not sending them miracles, private miracles to convince them to believe. That's not how God has ever operated. And if you expect that from God, he's not, that's a false expectation. He's never worked that way. Even for the original hearers of this book. And not only that, but do you really think that in order for us to believe the right amount of evidence is that God would have to, for every single individual, come up to them, do a private miracle to convince them to believe. No. It's be- and not only that, but it wouldn't even work if he did do it because of what Romans 1 says about our hearts. The root of unbelief is not a lack of evidence and never has been a lack of evidence. The root of unbelief is a problem of the heart. We, it's a denial of the obvious. That's what the heart of unbelief is. What is men, what is, what God has shown us in nature, he has made super evident to everyone. That's enough evidence to believe. Is he, the fact that he has revealed himself to us, both in nature and also in our own hearts. Think about, uh, this one's actually an important one to turn to in uh, Luke 16. Luke chapter 16. The rich man and Lazarus, what Jesus does. And this is really important because just as a setup, the two moments in history that had the most miracles happen in them were the two most unbelieving generations. The generation in Moses' time and the generation in Jesus' time. Both were marked by large swaths of people who saw the miracles happen in front of them and did not believe. Knowing that, let's read uh, the parable of the rich man Lazarus. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed and well-fed from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked up his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, And Lazarus at his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip his hand in the finger of at the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. 
But now he is comforted. He is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you might not be able, and none may cross from there to us. He said, then I beg you, Father, send, them, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced when, if someone should rise from the dead. You know this happened, right? <laughs> Jesus rose from the dead. He came from the dead and he went to his disciples, Matthew uh, 28. He came to his disciples and said that they, some, that they believed and worshipped him but some doubted. Unbelief is at its root foolishness because it's a denial of the obvious. A lack of evidence has never been our problem. And the sad fact from 1 Kings 18 is that not even Ahab turned. Ahab, after, right after this account, does not turn to Yahweh, but he returns to his wife Jezebel who reinvigorates her efforts to kill the prophets. The only, the only correction to this heart problem is for God to come into our lives and change our hearts, to give us a heart that believes him. And that's exactly what God does here. God answers both prayers for Elijah, for him to answer, to send fire, and also for him to answer to change the people's hearts. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back, or that you have caused their hearts to be turned back. The fire comes, and in verse 39, when the people saw it, they fell to their face and said, O Lord, he is God, O Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, but none of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. We see evidence of their changed heart by the fact that they first did the same exact things that we are called to do. A confession that the Lord, the one and true living God, is God alone. And on top of that, we as Christians, we have the confession from 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus was sent according to the scriptures, that he died for our sins, and that he is raised. That is our confession that we believe in. 
That is what God has to come into our hearts to convince us of. Not because we lack evidence of it. There's many eyewitnesses, but because in our natural state, we do not want to worship God. We do not want to serve him. And at times we even find ourselves hating God in and of ourselves. So they confess their sins and then they also repent. They turn away from the Baal worshipers. They turn away from them to serve the living God, which means here, joining God's side. Joining in this war, God's side. And if we were to think for a little bit what we need to turn from, what are the secret sins in our hearts, the different sins that we have, it's probably pretty obvious to us. Whether it's pornography that no one knows about, or it's some lust in our hearts, or whether we are enjoying murderous things in private that everyone else around us enjoys entertainment-wise, but we find ourselves enjoying it too. But the good news is the fact that God still right now is changing hearts. He's still reaching out to people, working the miracle of repentance and faith in the hearts and lives of his people, giving them a new heart. And the free offer of the gospel still goes out. That whosoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, believes that he died for your sins and that he is raised to new life, then he'll be your God. He is a merciful and kind Savior, ready to forgive, just as he was ready to forgive them. And in the midst of their rebellion, God went after them, and so God will do for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for working in our lives. We all tend to waver in our lives between loving God and not thinking of him. Lord, we need you to keep our hearts bound to you. We need you to secure for us in our hearts our hope for redemption that is found in Christ alone. Lord, we confess the danger of idolatry. Lord, the danger is that we trust in anything besides our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for salvation. And there is salvation in no other name besides his name. That is a dangerous place to be. Lord, I pray that our hope for heaven that is bound in the reality of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that our hope would become other people's hope. That as we seek to love and serve our Savior, knowing that we have been redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, that, Lord, that we would seek to see others also, that we'd give them the hope that lies within us, that we would deliver to them the facts that their salvation has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. And if they'll turn from their sins and place their trust in Jesus Christ, they will see forgiveness from the one true living God, the only God who is able to save us and them. We love you, Lord, and we praise your name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.